Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we have world-renowned paleontologist and New York Times best-selling author Steve Brusotti. He is a professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and up until now, he is most known for his best-selling book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. He's also a lead advisor on the Jurassic World movie franchise. But tonight, he's going to be talking to us about his latest focus, mammals. In fact, his book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, releases this month, so be sure to check it out at your local bookstore, library, or online. Steve, thank you for joining us here tonight at the Roundtable. It's an honor to have you here. Hi there, Jonathan. How are you? It's going to be fun. You mentioned in the book that after getting your PhD and carving out a niche as a dinosaur expert, you became obsessed with what happened after the extinction of dinosaurs. You became obsessed with us, mammals. Will you expound on that evolution in your own intellectual life and how you came to write this book? It is kind of funny, maybe, this book. So, you know, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals is, is the new book. It, in many ways, it's a, a follow-up to a book I wrote a few years ago called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not exactly a follow-up, but it, it takes the story forward. It's more of the story of us, our mammalian family, where we come came from, you know, our deepest heritage. Uh, but I certainly didn't imagine myself writing a book on mammals, <laughs> at least, you know, if I would have, you know, thought about this back when I was a student, because I, I very much um, began as a paleontologist, as a, a, a dinosaur specialist. That's what I studied beginning as an undergraduate. I got these really wonderful opportunities to do field work uh, with uh, a guy named Paul Serino, who was, was one of my uh, professors and my mentor when I was an undergraduate. He was a dinosaur researcher. He taught me how to find dinosaurs and study dinosaurs. I built on that. I continued, you know, up the, the graduate student ladder and, and eventually, you know, did did a PhD on dinosaurs. Oh, I did a master's on dinosaurs too. I did a master's on the rise of dinosaurs, where dinosaurs came from, and a PhD on the origin of birds from dinosaurs. So I kind of ticked through all these aspects of dinosaur evolution. And then when I uh, started my job here at the University of Edinburgh, and I joined the faculty here, I continued to study dinosaurs. But as I, you know, studied dinosaurs, and I kind of got to the end of dinosaurs, to the extinction of dinosaurs, and I, and I have studied the dinosaur extinction. Um, when I got to working on that, the next logical leap really was, okay, <laughs> this asteroid came down from the sky one day, the six mile wide asteroid just fell out of the heavens, detonated with the force of over a billion nuclear bombs that killed off all the dinosaurs other than some birds. Then what happened? Well, then what happened is mammals. <laughs> so I think it's just that natural progression of being curious about all of dinosaur history and then you reach the end of the dinosaur story. Where does it go from there? Then it becomes our story. And that's what uh, made me want to write this book. That's so fascinating. And I know by the time you finish the manuscript, you're just ready to be done with it. <laughs> so I'm sure absolutely. after all the... <laughs> absolutely. It's funny. You know, we write for the same publisher. So, you know, yeah. when HarperCollins is in Prince Mariner is yeah. publishing The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. So, you know, I think we're we're two fortunate people. We get to work with some of the best people in, in the industry. And it, it's, it's a, a wonderful thing to have those chances to, you know, to publish and yeah. actually get our writing out there. So it feels Absolutely. very, very special. We're very fortunate. I agree. You did a great job of laying out the history of the evolution of mammals, beginning with our ancient ancestors, examining the mammals that coexisted with dinosaurs, and working your way up to human mammals. 
as I was reading, I was fascinated by so many fun facts that you sprinkled throughout the book, like how paleontologists know that there were prehistoric mammals that actually ate dinosaurs for breakfast uh, because those last meals were fossilized in the stomach of the mammal. Also, you mentioned that the first whales had legs and could walk on land and swim in the water. And you even said that during the last ice age, there were armadillos the size of cars. These are incredibly fascinating insights. Can you give us a brief history of the timeline of when mammals arrived in the story of the planet and how that fits in with the timeline of the dinosaurs? This book, uh, it covers 325 million years of evolution. <laughs> and then it tries to do it in in 10 chapters. Uh, and so uh, the book goes all the way back to uh, a period of time that's called the Carboniferous period. Uh, and this is back when, even before the supercontinent, you know, maybe for the supercontinent Pangaea, we'll get to Pangaea, but this is even before there was a supercontinent. This is when the world was hot, it was humid, and you had these vast rainforests that covered much of the land, especially near the tropics. And it was those rainforests that were really the first jungles in the entire history of the earth. These were the first forests where you had trees that were 100 feet high. It was these trees that were dying and getting buried and, and that were being turned into the coal that we've mined that's really fueled you know, the Industrial Revolution and fueled so much of our uh, economy. These were the places that the mammal story starts. Now, this is not where the first mammals lived, but this is where the ancestors of mammals emerged because it was around 325 million years ago in those coal swamp forests back in this almost unimaginable world, a world, by the way, where there were dragonflies the size of pigeons. There were millipedes that were eight feet long. You know, this, this was like an alien world. In that world, you had a small little thing that looked like a lizard, and that thing it's split into two, really. So the great family tree of life diverged, and one way went the way of the reptiles. And eventually, the reptile side of the family tree would produce snakes and lizards and crocodiles and dinosaurs and pterodactyls and birds and all of those things. But the other side of the family tree, what we call the synapsid side, we call them synapsids because what defines them is that they have you know, an eye socket and then a big hole behind the eye socket where jaw muscles attach. And so it's that synapsid line that would lead to mammals. And so these synapsids continued to evolve during the Carboniferous period into the next interval of time, which is called the Permian period. This is when the supercontinent of Pangaea came together. This is when the world switched from being this humid, hothouse jungle world into a world that was parched by deserts. There was no ice on the poles. It was hot. It was dry. It was a very nasty difficult world. But this was a world that these synapsids thrived in. They had just the right kind of uh, way of reproducing with, with eggs that had uh, membranes that could keep the embryo nice and, and warm and moist. They had just the right kind of metabolism to colonize a lot of that world. And so the synapsids became the preeminent animals on the continent during the Permian. This is when you had animals like Dimetrodon, this famous iconic species with a big sal on its back. It looks kind of like a dinosaur. You often see it in the toy sets, you know, where you get dinosaur toys or on the posters next to T-Rex and Triceratops, but it's not a dinosaur. It's a synapsid. It's a relative of ours. And you had other synapsids, things like Gorgonopsians. They had saber teeth. They were flesh eaters. They were at the top of the food chain. You had other synapsids that were plant eaters, the first really big bulk feeding herbivores in earth history, things that had big barrel chests and weighed up to a ton. This was a synapsid world. They were the dominant animals on the supercontinent. And then 
there was a horrible extinction about 250 million years ago. These enormous volcanoes opened up in what is now Siberia. And these were not normal volcanoes. These are not the kind of volcanoes that we are used to. This is not Mount St. Helens. This isn't Pinatubo. You know, this isn't one volcano just blowing its top one day. This was a different style of volcanism altogether, Hmm. where basically enormous fissures or canyons opened up in the earth, like somebody cut the earth with a, a giant machete or something, and these canyons just bled out lava for hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. And up with that lava came carbon dioxide and methane, all these toxic, nasty gases, and that poisoned the atmosphere. It led to runaway global warming. It caused a mass extinction, the biggest mass extinction ever. The closest life has ever come to completely dying out. Up to 95% of species died out. Most of those synapsids died. This extinction, it just paused them in their tracks. They were so dominant. But then they were cut down by this extinction. Only a few species made it through. And then after that extinction, the world was so different. It was basically an empty world, a wide open playing field. And those few surviving synapses now had to regain what they lost. But in doing so, they had to compete against a lot of new animals, things that had survived, things that had evolved from the survivors, including the first crocodiles, the first turtles, the first pterodactyls, and the very first dinosaurs. And so we're now in the Triassic period after that extinction. And now the first mammals are coming onto the scene, but they're competing with the first dinosaurs. And of course, dinosaurs and mammals went their different ways. Dinosaurs were destined for grandeur. They became huge. Mammals were held in their place. They stayed small. The dinosaurs kept the mammals small. And for the next 150 or so million years, you would have mammals living with the dinosaurs. But those mammals never got bigger than a badger. But those mammals were very diverse. And what's really interesting in the story I try to tell in the book, something I try to articulate, is that, yes, the dinosaurs kept mammals from getting big. But the mammals kept dinosaurs from getting small. The mammals were so good at being small. You never saw a T-Rex the size of a rat. You never saw a brontosaurus the size of a mouse. No, that's because mammals moved into those small-bodied niches, and they diversified, and they seized those niches. And that's what things were like. And it was many of the features of mammals, the things that make mammals mammals, hair, and being able to feed their babies milk, and big brains, and keen intelligence, and warm-blooded metabolism. It was those things that allowed them to survive in the shadows in a world where dinosaurs became the big, giant, scary animal. In the book, you talk about how mammals were able to survive the asteroid that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Can you tell our listeners why did mammals survive and dinosaurs didn't? This is a great question. And we have to recognize a couple of things. First of all, dinosaurs and mammals, they lived alongside each other for a long time. I think that there's an idea that's kind of seeped in, I think, to the popular consciousness, if you want to call it that, um, that you know, dinosaurs had their day, then dinosaurs died, then the mammals evolved and took over from the dinosaurs. You know, an age of reptiles followed by an age of mammals. That's kind of true. Definitely, the mammals did take over from the dinosaurs, as we'll talk about. But it's not that mammals evolved only when the dinosaurs died. In fact, mammals and dinosaurs both originated at the same general time back in the Triassic period on the supercontinent of Pangaea after that terrible extinction. And they found an equilibrium. They found a way to live together 
for over 150 million years during the Jurassic period, during the Cretaceous period. And really, it was dinosaurs were the big ones. They were the ones that were living during the day, active during the day. The mammals were the small ones. They were mostly active at night. And mammals, they were fast, they were smart, they had really keen senses of hearing, really keen senses of smell. They were able to feed their babies milk. That's a, that's a superpower, really, you know, to be able to, to nourish your young that way. So many other things like that allowed mammals to survive alongside the dinosaurs. And then, really, literally, everything changed one instant. 66 million years ago, when that asteroid fell out of the sky, that was pivotal. You know, everything really did change. It was an, an example. You know, the Earth is four and a half billion years old. And this is an example of how one moment completely reset the whole trajectory of history. I mean, that asteroid could have just sailed right on by. It could have been a near miss. It could have rustled the upper layers of the atmosphere. This was just a random space rock. You know, wow. it, it had no destination in mind, but it just so happened to smash into what's now Mexico, punch a hole in the crust over 100 miles wide, release more energy than a billion nuclear bombs put together, and instantaneously it unleashed chaos. Earthquakes, wildfires, hurricane force winds, tsunamis, all kinds of things. And so the earth was reshaped and so many species died, about 75% of species died, including all of the dinosaurs except for some birds and including most of the mammals and believe it or not it looks like about 90 percent of all mammals died so mammals were victims of that asteroid too but it would just so happen that some mammals were able to endure and it looks like the mammals that did survive were the ones that were smaller and the ones that had more omnivorous diets. So basically, it seems like the survivors were ones that could probably hide easier. They could probably burrow. They could probably scurry around faster. And they could eat lots of different foods. They were flexible. They were generalist. Whereas the mammals that died, and definitely the dinosaurs that died, they were more specialized. The dinosaurs, they were bigger. They needed a lot of food. They often had very specific diets. It would take them many years to go from a, a, an egg to an adult. You know, that made them very vulnerable. But the mammals that survived, they had this winning hand of cards. And it, one of those survivors was an ancestor of ours. We had a direct ancestor that would have stared down that asteroid and gotten through that darkest hour of Earth history. Besides humans, what is your favorite mammal? <laughs> I don't, oh, are humans even my favorite mammal? I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I do. I, you know, I, I would say that I think if I, if I had to name one that really fascinates me the most, there were sloths that used to live in South America and in North America. And they lived up until about 10,000 years ago. Our ancestors, and not even our ancestors, early Homo sapiens, members of our species, would have seen these animals. These were sloths that lived mm. on the ground. They were over 10 feet tall. They could have dunked a basketball. <laughs> basketball hoops existed there. I mean, an animal like that is just mind-bending. So the giant ground sloths, to me, are just some of the most remarkable things that evolution has ever produced. And members of our species would have met them, would have encountered them. They just went extinct so recently as the Ice Age 
thought ended about 10,000 years ago. Do we know who the first people were to, to find and accurately identify mammal fossils? We often talk about these things, the first, you know, who discovered the first dinosaur? Who, you know, discovered the first mammal, you know? These questions are impossible to answer because human beings have been encountering fossils for millennia. And there's lots of different stories. There's lots of legends and myths and stories that have been passed down, whether it's from Native American tribes, whether it's from people in Central Asia, whether it's from ancient Greeks, other people in the Mediterranean. There's lots of stories of people encountering giant bones that almost certainly were fossils. Hmm. But but if we ask the question, you know, who was the, the who were the first people? that discovered and accurately identified a fossil as belonging to a certain type of animal that doesn't exist anymore and who put those you know that that information into writing and when we ask that question the answer is it was a group of slaves a group of enslaved peoples from africa that were brought to north america they were living in south carolina they were digging in one of the malarial swamps. And as they were digging in the mud, they felt these big objects down in the muck and they pulled up a few of these objects. Each one was about the size of a tennis shoe. And they they were covered in a shiny hard substance and they had a lot of parallel ridges on them. And these slaves recognized immediately what these things were. They realized they were teeth, Hmm. they were big teeth, and they were teeth of elephants. They knew elephants. They were from Africa. You know, elephants don't live in North America anymore. But these slaves, they were forcibly brought over. They were stolen from Africa, brought here. They, so they knew these animals from their, their home. And they told this, of course, to people on the plantation. And they were laughed at. You know, yeah, elephants in South Carolina. Yeah, right. But no, it turned out to be true. And those impressions were put, in, put into writing. And so we know that those people identified those fossils. We now know that these were the teeth of mammoths. And of course, now woolly mammoths are some of the most iconic, most charismatic, most amazing fossil mammals. Everybody knows woolly mammoths, but the people who really first realized that they lived in North America were slaves. You talk about Homo sapiens hunting woolly mammoths just 10,000 years ago. That wasn't very long ago. Uh, can you tell us what those hunts would have looked like? What weapons were being used? Uh, how were they trapping them and, and killing them? What parts uh, of the mammoth were used or discarded? It's an amazing thing to think about. Just, just you know, close your eyes and visualize yourself <laughs> hunting a woolly mammoth. I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds like something out of a, you know, a sci-fi novel or a fantasy novel or a, you know, a film or something. But really, it's not that crazy because human beings, Homo sapiens, members of our species, did encounter woolly mammoths. They did hunt woolly mammoths. And in fact, they probably hunted them or at least affected them and their environment so much that they caused the extinction of woolly mammoths. We were probably the extinction agent. The asteroid killed the dinosaurs. For woolly mammoths, we were the asteroid. Hmm. But just imagine that. I mean, up until about 10,000 years ago, there were woolly mammoths in, in North America and in Europe and in, in, in Asia. And human beings hunted them. And, and, and this isn't a guesswork. You know, we know this. We have fossil skeletons of mammoths that have marks on the bones that were left by tools, by stone tools. Mm. We have fossil mammoth skeletons that have the stone tools right next to them. 
you know, people left their weapons as they were killing and butchering these mammoths. So we know this. This is a fact. There is absolute direct fossil and archaeological evidence that human beings hunted woolly mammoths, plus a lot of the other giant ice age mammals, too. And they definitely, these, these early humans, they use stone tools. They, they, it seems like they would have used, used different types of spears to hunt the mammoths. And then they had other tools like scrapers, for instance, and cleavers to break up the skeleton, to, the, the, the body, to butcher it, basically. So these, you know, early humans were hunters and they were butchers. It seemed like, it seems like from some of the archaeological sites that are preserved, including uh, there's, there's a couple in Wisconsin, which I, I use uh, to flesh out a story that I tell, a bit of a fictional story, but it's based on the evidence uh, in, in, one, in the Ice Age chapter of the book. And these, these fossil sites, archaeological sites in Wisconsin, where there are mammoth skeletons with butcher marks on the bones, with some of the tools left behind, they indicate that the humans that did this butchering, they were very careful, they were very thoughtful, they were very methodical, they knew the mammoths, they understood mammoth meat the same way a really good butcher understands a cow or understands a pig and how to cut it and how to maximize, you know, your energy and how to get the best, you know, meat off the bone and so on. So it looks like humans were very accomplished when it came to butchering mammoths. But then about 10,000 years ago, mammoths disappeared. They did hold on a little bit longer on some islands uh, in the Arctic, but at least on the mainland, they disappeared about 10,000 years ago. And it really does seem that humans played a role in that extinction, maybe not through just hunting the mammoths to death, but through a combination of hunting, a combination of clearing environments, of, of clearing landscapes, of breaking up mammoth populations, of humans expanding in their numbers, putting pressure on the mammoths, as well as other large Ice Age mammals. So, And then, of course, there was big climate change at the time as well. We were coming out of the last Ice Age. So when you put that together, this pressure from humans, this pressure from the changing climate, the mammals, uh, many mammals were not able to cope, especially a lot of larger mammals. And this is why woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and woolly rhinos and giant Irish elk with antlers the size of dinner tables and armadillos the size of cars and the giant ground sloths and wombats that weighed over a ton in Australia. This is why all of these things died, and they died very recently. You talk about how there were once quite a few species of humans living together on the planet at the same time. Today, we only have one species, which you mentioned means that we're at the lowest point of diversity since the dawn of the human family. Is this a good or bad thing? Is it simply the result of natural selection, or does it lower our chances of long-term survival because we're existing on a singular hope instead of having multiple irons in the fire, so to speak? Boy, that's, it's, that's a big question. That's a loaded question. That's a question that really comes down you know, to uh, things beyond science, to our concept of ourselves and concept of of ethics and values and so on. I, just to start off by answering that, I'll just say, I mean, isn't it remarkable that there used to be other species of humans? I think it's something that a lot of people don't quite realize. You know, even people that, that you know, know about evolution, that learned about evolution, that have learned about the ancestry of humans. I think a lot of times the stories presented that, you know, there was kind of apes and then some of those apes became kind of things that walked upright and you had ancient humans like the Lucy skeleton. Uh, and then those things became Homo sapiens, and there was this nice, neat, orderly, linear kind of ladder-like progression of evolution. And that's not true. The human family is, is more like a bush with lots of different branches all tangled together. And up until about 40,000 years ago, maybe even more recently, there were always multiple species of humans. 
going back at least about three or four million years. And there were times when it seems like maybe there were a handful, even up to a dozen potentially, spe different species of humans living together. These would have been different species of apes that walked on two legs, that had pretty, pretty big brains, that had arms that they could use to hold things and to make tools and to hunt with and so on. That to me is just remarkable. And that now <laughs> we are at our lowest ebb of diversity. It is just us alone pondering where we came from. Now, of course, we are one species today, but we are very successful. We have reshaped the planet. We have reproduced like crazy. I mean, there's more than 7 billion of them, maybe more than 8 billion of us. Now. I don't know what, what the numbers are, but I mean, we, we live all over the planet. So really we've crowded out some of these other species. And up until about 40,000 years ago, there were other types of humans like Neanderthals, which are a different species, a very close relative, but they're not Homo sapiens. And there is even a, a, a type of a human called the Denisovans. And these were only discovered uh, around a decade ago. And they were only even realized to be a thing from genetic evidence, from fossil DNA in bones. It was so different from the DNA of modern Homo sapiens and of Neanderthals that they had to have been a different species. And these lived mostly in Asia. They got into Europe a little bit. We still have never found a, a skeleton in one of these things. We just have bits of their bones from here and there. This is probably the biggest prize in paleoanthropology, a skeleton of one of these Denisovans. But we can tell from the bones that we have and the DNA preserved in those bones that modern day Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans, they all interbred with each other. You know, they were different species, but they were closely related enough that they could breed. And there is a fossil of a hybrid that had one Denisovan parent, one Neanderthal parent. And you can tell that from the DNA. That's amazing. That's something also to me about mammals that's really interesting. When I started, you know, my career studying dinosaurs, you think about DNA, you think about Jurassic Park, you think about the whole science fiction of it. And that's just not going to happen. Dinosaurs are too old. The DNA degrades so quickly. You're not going to get 66 million year old DNA, much less, you know, 150 million year old DNA if you wanted brontosaurus DNA or something. But with a lot of these fossil mammals, including fossil humans, they live so recently that there still is DNA preserved in the fossils. And you can find that DNA and you can sequence that DNA and you can compare it to the DNA of living species. You can use that DNA to build family trees, almost like a paternity test that you see on one of those afternoon talk shows. And it just gives you such a rich understanding of evolution. You were an advisor on the Jurassic World film franchise. How did that come about? Who contacted you? Uh, how did you get involved? And is there anything specific that we should look for when watching the movie? Yeah, so the new Jurassic World, Jurassic World Dominion, it'll be out uh, in June, the same week that uh, my book comes out, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals comes out. Not, not coincidental, as you can imagine, <laughs> from a marketing and PR standpoint and all that. You know, we knew there was going to be uh, some big, uh, you know, fossils and ancient life in the news this summer, in the pop culture this summer, so let's ride the wave. Um, so the new the new film, though, it's 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 a lot of fun. I am the the, the science advisor um, on the film, and the, the paleontology advisor for the Jurassic World series, and it's something I was invited to do actually because of my dinosaur book, because of um, the rise and fall of the dinosaurs. So believe it or not, back in the summer of 2018, uh, it is when the last Jurassic World film came out. And it's also when my dinosaur book came out, of course, again, no coincidence. <laughs> and uh, and a, a few months after the book came out, I got an email 
uh, from a guy purporting to be Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> and of course, I recognize the name immediately because he's the director and the producer of the Jurassic World series. And his email, uh, it said something along the lines of, hey, my name's Colin. Uh, I make scientifically inaccurate dinosaur films. I just read your book. I'd love to chat. <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. I thought this was a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, maybe one of my students just trying to have a laugh, you know, trying to deflate my ego a little bit or something after the dinosaur book came out. But I had my my book people look into it. You know, I, I, I told my editor and stuff and, and they looked into it my editor and my my literary agent and uh and they said no no this is real this is really his email I said holy crap okay so we, we set up a phone call i chatted with him on the phone uh he said he was going to be coming to edinburgh uh here in scotland you know where i live and, and and teach now he was coming with his family for the festival we have the big arts festival every every august and we set up a meeting and um we chatted for several hours we almost you know him, him and his wife and his kids you know they, they were at a show and he was supposed to meet them and he did meet them but he was Colin was almost late because we were just blabbering on about dinosaurs but it was a really fun chat he told me right away that you know he's he, there's going to be the third film in the trilogy he's starting to think about that film to plot it out he's starting to think about storylines think about characters and that he wanted to bring a lot of new dinosaurs into the film and he wanted to put feathers on some of those dinosaurs, finally, which is something that scientists like me have been waiting for. So he told me that right away. And I said, that's awesome. I'm, you know, I think that's so cool. And he said, do you want to help out? you want to help make these dinosaurs realistic? And do you want to, you know, be the person who can be in our ears telling us about the science? And I said, absolutely. So from there on, you know, I took on the role of consultant. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, just working with some insanely talented people, you know, people in the film industry that are just at the top of their field. So it's been very rewarding in that way. And I do think in, you know, the new film this summer uh, that there are, there's going to be some new dinosaurs. You're going to see feathered dinosaurs. Uh, you're going to see, uh, uh, I think, uh, just a very engaging and much more realistic look at dinosaurs than we ever have seen in, in the franchise. You were in the first generation of paleontologists who were kids when Jurassic Park came out in 1993. Do you remember going to see it in theaters when you were a kid? If so, what was your reaction and did it have an impact on you wanting to grow up and become a paleontologist? Absolutely, it did. And it was 93 that it came out. Then there were some other ones a bit later. But I, it, it was 93. I was nine years old. I remember being in the cinema, watching it with my, my brothers and my dad. Uh, and it blew me away, that film. I mean, those dinosaurs just seemed so realistic. That was so different than the way dinosaurs were presented in any of the books or TV shows or anything. I mean, they seemed like real animals. The special effects were just, you know, astronomical compared to any other films. You know, go back to 93. You know, I mean, this, this you know, there's, it was just so far beyond anything I'd ever seen on the screen. Um, it did not make me want to be a paleontologist right away, but it did really inspire my youngest brother, Chris, and he's four years younger than me, and he did become the quintessential dino dork, the dino geek, the kid who knows all the names, who can spell all the names, pronounce all the names, you know, the kid who's correcting his teachers, <laughs> the kid who's dragging his parents to the dinosaur museum, you know, he turned his bedroom into an actual dinosaur museum <laughs> and uh, it was really a jurassic park museum in many ways he had all the posters on the wall he had all the jurassic park toys he had oh yeah it's over 100 books i think he had he had his own little dinosaur library and it was just over the years of being in that environment i was just you know 
seeped in this thing. Like I was just, you know, just just marinating <laughs> in this dinosaur environment. And it was really about four or five years later that it just clicked with me. Um, and I became fascinated with dinosaurs. I started reading a lot of Chris's books. And I was, a, you know, I was just starting high school then. So I was a little bit older. And I think I had a, maybe a bit more of a mature outlook. It, you know, I, I didn't really get obsessed with dinosaurs, maybe in the same way that a five-year-old would. I mean, I was really became interested in evolution, in earth history, in geology, and, and just these bigger questions about what the earth is like and how the earth works and how the earth has changed. And, and, and so, you know, I, I became so engaged with dinosaurs. And after about a year of that, of just reading every book I could and following, you know, museums and scientists on the internet and so on, that I, I realized, okay, you know, I can maybe try to make a career out of this. And then one thing's led to another. And I think, you know, yeah, my enthusiasm, my passion has guided me through. I've been very fortunate. I have, I've had incredible mentors really every step of the way that have opened doors for me, given me opportunities, taken me out into the field, introduced me to their colleagues around the world, taught me how to find dinosaurs and describe dinosaurs. And then more recently, as I've transitioned more into mammals, I've had mentors that have brought me along. You know, this guy who studied dinosaurs now wants to study mammals. Okay, they brought me under their wing. People like Tom Williamson and John Weibel and, and others who I talk about in the book, uh, you know, who, people who I'm just very, very grateful for, some of the world's leading mammal experts. I've learned a lot from them. So I feel, feel like I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, I think a lot of things have broken my way. I've, a lot of doors have opened here and there. Um, and I think you're right that more than anything, it's just I, I love this stuff. I'm really enthusiastic about it. Uh, and I'm, you know, one of those lucky people that gets to dig up dinosaur and mammal fossils for a living. And I'm one of those fortunate people. And I, you know, I don't take this for granted. Um, I, I appreciate, I really appreciate that. I do get to, you know, have my passion. I've been able to mold that into a career. And I know that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, and I just know how lucky that I've been. My six-year-old daughter, Lily, uh, is obsessed with dinosaurs the past couple of years. Uh, similar to your brother, she's kind of turned her bedroom into a dinosaur museum with figurines. <laughs> All right for Lily. Tell Lily yeah. that's great. You know, Pictures that's everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> and she's, she's fascinated with paleontologists like yourself and Mary Anning. And I tried to tell her the answer to this question, but she told me to ask you because she wanted to hear the answer from a real-life paleontologist. Okay. And her question is, does an ankylosaurus lay eggs or have babies? Okay, so ankylosaurus is, you know, it's a dinosaur. Um, for, for you know, those of you listening who, who don't have a six-year-old that <laughs> keeps you on your toes with these things, um, you might not know ankylosaurus or maybe you've vaguely heard of it, but it's one of those armored dinosaurs. It's one of those dinosaurs that looked like a tank. You know, it had basically body armor all over itself. It walked on four legs. A lot of them had a big... Uh, a club of bone, basically like a bowling ball of bone at the end of their tail they would use to defend themselves. Um, so they're very famous dinosaurs and, and, and you know, they lived for a long time, but Ankylosaurus itself lived right at the end. It was there when the asteroid hit along with T-Rex and Triceratops. Uh, it would have laid eggs. All dinosaurs, as far as we know, laid eggs. Uh, we have fossilized nests of dinosaurs. We have fossilized, lots of fossilized eggs, but yeah, a lot of times we find them in nests. Sometimes we find embryos, little bones of the babies inside the eggs. Uh, and so Ankylosaurus, you can tell Lily would have laid eggs. You can also tell Lily, and here's something that, you know, you might find wild. The first mammals laid eggs. You know, we think about we're mammals. We give live birth. You know, we give birth to babies. Those babies, you know, grow, <laughs> grow in the womb for quite a long time in our case. And that is true of 
placental mammals, the type of mammals we are, the ones that give live birth to well-developed young. And most mammals we know of, you know, humans and monkeys, dogs, cats, bears, whales, um, elephants, you know, basically almost every mammal we know of is a placental that does that. Now, there are marsupials that give birth to tiny little babies they raise in their pouches like kangaroos and koalas, but there's not so many species of those alive today. But the rarest mammals of all today are the monotremes, and there's only a handful of species, and they only live in Australia and some of the islands around Australia. And these are the platypus and the echidna. And these mammals lay eggs. There are still mammals in our world that lay little eggs. And these are very archaic, primitive mammals. They've just somehow managed to hold on. They've endured the ravages of extinction. They've clawed their way into the modern world. They're great survivors. But they hearken back to a time when the first mammals actually laid eggs, which is, I think, an amazing thing to think of. From the research you've done in your first two books examining the histories of both dinosaurs and mammals, what is the most important or dire message you'd like to share with our listeners? What would you want to say to individual humans and the global civilization regarding our relationship with each other and with the planet? When we study fossils and we study uh, geology and rocks and earth history and so on, I mean, we realize that the earth is very, very old. The earth is four and a half billion years old and the earth has gone through so much. It's gone through heat spikes, it's gone through cold spells, ice ages, it's gone through rising seas and falling seas. There have been times of huge volcanoes and giant asteroid impacts and all kinds of things. The Earth is very resilient, but all this fits together into one story. And what we've learned from Earth history is oftentimes the most successful, the most dominant species, they can die out if things change really quickly, if climates change really quickly, if environments change really quickly. And when they die out, they, they pave the way for something else to come in their place. And really, we as a species are only here because that asteroid killed off the dinosaurs. If there was no asteroid, if that space rock was a near miss and it sailed right on by, T-Rexes, Triceratopses, Ankylosauruses, all those dinosaurs would have continued to evolve. And I think dinosaurs still would have been the key species, the preeminent species today. Mammals probably would have still been in the shadows. Mm. So it was that extinction of the dinosaurs that paved the way for us. And now we wear the crown that the dinosaurs once wore. And we live all over the world and we're the dominant species. But if something like that could happen to the dinosaurs, could it happen to us? And of course it could. We are just another species, a product of nature. But the dinosaurs, they didn't know that asteroid was coming. They had no way. It literally just fell out of the sky one day. They had no way to stop it. They had no way to prepare for it. They had no way to really deal with it other than just through the vagaries of natural selection. For us, we, you know, we have evolved. We, we, we are a sublime species. We have evolved intelligence and consciousness and the ability to work together in groups. These are all hallmarks of the human species. So we know how we affect the world. And we can change. We can make changes when we realize, okay, climates are, are you know, temperatures are warming uh, and so on. We can make changes. We have the agency to do so. And so I think that's the big lesson out of all of this. You read these books, and when I write these books, I want to give pe people an understanding of how old the earth is, of the amazing plants and animals that have lived before us, and of how, how these plants and animals ultimately have changed over time paving the way for today. 
And I hope there's that deep appreciation that people get of our story, our evolutionary story that comes out of these books. It's a wonderful message. Lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests is if you have a book or film recommendation for our listeners, something they can continue on with beyond this episode. I, I want to draw the attention to, to two books, which I think are really cool. One's new. That's Riley Black's new book um, on the, the last days of the dinosaurs. It tells the story of the extinction from the animal's perspective. It's really cool. It's a very novel, really fun um, a, a approach to science writing, and she's done a, a tremendous job with that book. Uh, another one is a book that was published a few years ago called The Ends of the World by Peter Brannon. I think Peter's the, really the preeminent geology science writer today. He, Peter's a journalist and, and he's you know uh, written now a lot. He writes a lot for The Atlantic and other publications, but he wrote this excellent book. It's all about mass extinctions. There's been five big mass extinctions in earth history. And Peter, he, he traces all five. And then he, of course, comes to the present and he addresses, you know, are we in a sixth extinction today? How is the earth changing today? How might the earth change in the future? I think those are, are two excellent books, but there are so many other uh, good books about dinosaurs, about fossils. That's uh, a very engaging field. And um, that's one of the, the wonderful things about paleontology. It's just a science that's really accessible. It's interesting to people. There's low barrier for entry. Anybody can find a fossil. You don't need a doctorate. You don't need to be a professor to do it. So we have this vast community of amateur and avocational and basically fan paleontologists. Uh, and, and they're an integral part of our field. And that's one of the best things about being part of this field is that we have this great connection to the public. To all you listeners, you can learn more about Steve Brusati's work at www.stevebrusati.com. I also highly recommend checking out both of his books at your local bookstore, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs and the newly released The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. They're both fascinating reads. Steve, thank you for taking the time to be with us here at the Roundtable tonight. It was wonderful to chat with you, and we wish you all the best in your academic and literary endeavors. Hey, and my best to Lily. Tell her to keep in touch, and maybe she, uh, you know, in uh, 10 years, 15 years, come over here, dig some dinosaurs. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at the Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorers Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.